0: Marshall and Sager here. Welcome back to The Realignment. I said that intro the way we normally say it, but this episode is actually a little different. For our first episode this year, we're going to have a very, very, very meta conversation about podcasting the format that obviously you, Sagar, and I have been working in, But today we're bringing in a special guest, Sachit Gupta. Sachit is a podcaster, and most importantly for this conversation, him and I are going to be working together at a company called On Deck to help people build their own podcasts. So to start us off, Sachit, let's hit the most obvious question. Why are you excited about podcasting and the podcasting space this year?
1: So first of all, thank you for having me. And I am really, really excited for us to work together. Um, The reason I'm excited about podcasting is I've been sort of like behind the scenes for the last about eight years, working with a lot of top podcasters and and started my own. And for me, I don't know any other medium where you can learn from people as fast as you can. So like think about, let's say like you wanna learn more about a topic and you email people and you wanna get into calls with people. it's really hard to like get like 15, 20, 30 minutes with someone, right? But if you have a podcast um, and you email someone, they'll just sort of like roll out the red carpet, give you like an hour, two hours to just record a podcast. And so for me, like, I think it's for people who are insatiably curious about a topic or want to sort of establish a a brand in a different industry or in their industry, it's the easiest way to do it. Um, Seth Godin has this really great quote. Um, People talk about getting like writer's block. Um, No one gets talker's block. So it's like hard to like start a Substack or start a writing publication podcast and you're just talking, Um, you just need a mic. And I think it's just a really easy way to learn.
2: Yeah, it's absolutely my favorite medium. I mean, even more so than television, I can tell you that. Having done short-form television and and done this like in a lot of different formats, this right here, video, audio, long-form, no ad breaks, no types of considerations, hands down, is the best. Now, we've got a big audience here, which I think really appreciates this particular type of medium, Saja. They look to people like Joe Rogan. They probably listen to four or five, maybe even ten different podcasts um, in a separate month. You have worked, like you were referencing, some of the top podcasters in the industry, people like Tim Ferriss, you know, others that I think people here might recognize. What are some of the things that you learned um, while you were working with these guys, general lessons, because I actually hear from a lot of people, younger journalism students and others that like soccer, like, how can I do what you and Marshall do? How can I do what you and Crystal do on rising? And I wish I had a better answer, but the fact is that this medium is so new, it's so evolving and all that you kind of forge your own way. So if you're giving advice to somebody like that, what are some of these lessons that you've learned throughout what you've been doing?
1: Yeah, so, so there's three things. If, if I'm talking to someone who's starting out in podcasting, there's three sort of like things and stories I always love telling. First is um, when you're starting in this game, understand the game that you're playing. So one of the things I did is I looked at a lot of like top tier creators now, um, MKBHD, Mr. Beast, um, in, in different mediums. And barring a few exceptions, I, I saw this pattern of like, you start really slow and you keep going slowly. Sometimes it's one year, three years, four years, five years. And then something happens and where you have liftoff, right? Yeah. And and I think one of the mistakes people make is they start expecting a huge return um, and and they quit too soon. So just knowing like the game you're playing and like, knowing that you want to do it for a long time, like five, 10 year horizon, that just separates you from most people because there's this term actually, in, especially in podcasting called fade, where most podcasts will last like a few episodes or a few months and then they just go away because the creators give up. So, so that was one. Um, second was I, I've seen like people have this fear of like being seen starting small. So when, when you're starting, you obviously like have a small audience and people feel like shame or people discouraged about that, but like that's just part of the game. And that's where you have to go through to like start hitting big numbers. So so those are two things that I always see and help people when they're starting out. So, so the third one is I think actually that that's this is another thing that like trips people up is this idea of like competition, right? Like how do you differentiate yourself from all the other ones? And I made the same mistake when I started out. I remember like, I would like try and ask questions like Ferris or like some questions like Jordan Harbinger or whatever. And I, I don't know how, like how you guys think about that but what I've discovered is um, people will sometimes like sit on their couch and be like, I need to find my voice and then I'll start recording. What I learned was you find your voice through doing it. So like, as I started doing more episodes I found more of my style. And that's sort of like how you become unique and you separate yourself from all the others is by just doing it. And a lot of people will will not start doing it because they're waiting for the perfect moment. And there's no perfect moment.
2: Yeah. No, this is such an important point. And I want to underscore this actually with my own kind of story here, which is that when we – I want people to understand like rising as of right now as this is recording is officially at 1 million subscribers on YouTube, right? And if I do a monologue, I do like a daily radar every day. If it gets less than like 100,000 views, I'm like, oh, I screwed up. Like, I don't know what's going on here. When I first started out, these things were getting 25 to 50, sometimes on a good day, 300 views. Okay? That's where it all started. Now... You're like you said, what happened is that one day it went from like 300 to like 10,000. And then the next day it's like 10,000 to like 50, then 50 to 100. So if you had been discouraged in those first couple of months, it never would have worked out. And, and that was just a couple of months. Like I honestly probably got lucky. So you actually have to stay in this game and churn and dry for a long time in order for it to work out. One thing you said, which I thought was really important at the beginning, is that you were talking about podcasting in a not, and you didn't use any monetary terms. You weren't like, well, if you podcast, like you can use advertising dollars and that supports you and like, you were like, no, 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 no. this is a great way to meet people and all that. Talk about that a little bit more. What is it that's so cool about this medium where we're not just working in order to get more eyeballs necessarily, it's like the collaboration itself is part of what the value add of this medium is.
1: Yeah, totally. And I think a lot of people will get into sort of like these mediums expecting to just like hit it big or make millions of dollars from sponsorships. Right. But right. if you look at like any sort of like industry or medium, it's true that like always like the most returns go, go to the top, top, like people at the top and everyone else isn't making that much directly. Um, so a lot of people come to me and they're like, hey, how do I make like hundreds of thousands of dollars from sponsorship? But the, <laughs> the actual benefits come from like indirect um indirect sort of like ways. So my great, one of my great favorite examples is Chris Lockhead, who has the follow your different podcast. I remember having a conversation with him about ads and it was basically like given the show that you have ads don't make sense or like don't try and maximize that, but look at like indirect returns. And then a few months later, he met a founder of a company who then had him come to his board. Um, and like basically was like on the board of directors and is a great relationship for him. And there's, there's sort of like all these like indirect relationships that come that could like lead to new jobs, lead to like speaking at conferences, doing like audience blasts, all those things that you don't think about.
0: So let's talk about the actual way that the format works because Sagar, when you were talking about rising and going from Mm -hmm. 50 to 100 and 250, Some people are interested in video podcasts using YouTube, but if you're using a traditional player like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, there is no recommendation algorithm. So for example, why was it that your show, Rising, really grew? We both watched this. June 2019, you had Andrew Yang on. When Andrew Yang came on, the Andrew Yang episode would fit into the algorithm. People started getting it recommended. So Sacha, nothing like that operates in the podcasting space it's actually really annoying and it's a huge thing that people complain about for example we don't live in a world where let's say we do this episode with you it's not going to clearly come up in other episodes of other podcasts to see that episode recommended to you talk about the way that these platforms whether the streaming option of spotify the traditional rss feed of apple podcasts and the youtube algorithm how do they work together and how do they not work together
1: yeah. One thing I've seen about the podcast algorithm that's interesting is it really like, and I think it applies to like all social platforms, they really reward consistently. So if you're publishing mm-hmm. every week, um, your downloads will like slowly keep growing. What happened for me actually is like I published, stopped publishing for a while, and I started republishing. Like my downloads were in half. Um, and and th- I think like that's just because like from the advertising perspective, they want to reward people who are creating more content so they can show ads against it. If I think about audience growth, um, quick question
0: about that yep. just on that specific note, what do you mean by your downloads went down because as as I understand it, when I subscribe to a podcast, it automatically downloads every Tuesday. Why would you stop why would you stopping publishing mean that your overall downloads
1: went down? I think part of it is just sort of like listener behavior yeah. when someone subscribed to like tens or like 10 20 30 podcasts if they're seeing you publish every monday like it's building that relationship right if you go away for a certain time and they start listening to another podcast then they're less likely to go back to yours because just people i think people also want consistently consistency i have a friend for example um he was telling me he starts every monday by listening to the same podcast and going to the gym And, and people build routines around it so like if you don't publish consistently also like it it sort of like hits people's routines
0: so this is good because I'm trying to understand the terms here. The, art- the story you just told, though, is about the choices individual listeners are doing. What does what do those choices have to do with the algorithm? Because in your original point, you were saying the algorithm itself rewards consistency. Or am I just sort of applying terms the wrong way?
1: I-, I think it's a combination of that because the algorithm is also based on listener behavior. So the algorithm will show things that people are listening to, right? And so if let's say you've published a video and it has a hundred thousand views and then you take a break and like three weeks later you come back and the initial views are like much less Then the algorithm will promote it less because Mm. basically all the algorithms are a feedback loop that are taking into account the first interaction that someone has and then basing it off that. And then like through that, like they figure out how much to propagate something. That makes sense to me. I, you know what's so interesting
2: to me about all of this is that I guess it presumes open podcasting, right? And so this is one of the things I really want to talk to you about. I mean, I've heard from a lot of people, I, I mean myself, in terms of the all the dynamics around the Spotify deal with Joe Rogan. And like, what does it mean, right? Like Spotify wants to be the podcasting platform, like a closed system so that they can own your you know, ears and they can dynamically insert ads and in the long run create billions of dollars in shareholder value and all of that. The thing is right now is I'm looking at my Spotify app and it doesn't recommend like other podcasts, right? And even not necessarily in the way that it would music. And I think I speak for a lot of Rogan listeners here. The I will call it clunky at best um, in terms of the user experience and some of the benefits that came from being able to watch something on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast app is, as we always say in the rate and review What do you think that means to kind of the future of the medium? Because I think we all really took for granted how cool it was to have an open system where you can monetize the way that you want, where your listeners have like ultimate choice, but that's actually bad for the big tech companies or the streaming platforms necessarily. So where do you think that's going? Like where is it headed?
1: Yeah, I I think this is probably one of the most exciting things that's coming or in podcasting in 2021 is, if you look at all of the platforms, right? Spotify, Apple, Amazon, they basically have two priorities, bring more listeners onto the platforms and then have listeners spend more time listening. Um, And and there's a whole thing of like, why like Spotify is now focusing on podcasting because there's like less royalties compared to like music and people actually listen for longer than they listen to songs. Um, I think from an independent creator perspective, um, it's really interesting because if you sort of like just are with one platform, then there's questions around like IP and all of those things. Uh, for example, like Joe Rogan, for, from what I understand, did a licensing deal where he yeah. still has the IP and Spotify is licensing the content instead of owning the content. Um, and I think it is a very exciting time to be an independent creator, but also just from the medium itself, it'll be really interesting how all this shakes out.
0: I'm glad you how, brought up, oh
1: yeah, go, ahead, please. I, I, was gonna, I was curious, like, how are you guys thinking about that? It's a really
0: interesting question because, Sagar, I like your articulation of the way Spotify sees itself. I see Spotify as trying to become the YouTube of the podcasting space. If you think of video, you go to YouTube. They want a world where in 2024, if you think of podcasting, you go to Spotify with the streaming system. And that's why they're spending so much money acquiring things like The Ringer. That's why they are licensing Joe Rogan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That being said, and this is why these sort of wonky open versus closed debate matters, is a lot of people have learned a lesson from the late 2010s of not trying to put all of their energy and all of their eggs in the basket of a platform that's too powerful for them. So for example, let's make it political for a quick second. Think of all the big debates about censorship on YouTube those debates basically come down to the fact that if you want to put video and you want that video to get lots of eyeballs you basically depend on youtube and its very powerful algorithm and its very big audience that also means that over time the advertising on that platform is probably going to commoditize so you are hypothetically likely to make less money over time now for the people who defend the more open system, what they would say is an open system is one where you as a creator, you as Joe Rogan, you as Sachet, you as the realignment have the ability to say, hey, I want to put something on Spotify because maybe I like Spotify's commoditized ads. But I also want to use a private podcasting system, which we will get into later. And I want to have a subscriber option like people use with Patreon and Supercast. So those are the big examples. That's the part that I'm excited about.
2: Yeah, I mean, here's here's where I'm concerned, right? Which is this, and this is not an original point. I'm going to give credit to Scott Galloway. I was listening to something he said uh, very recently, who was on the podcast too. So if, if you haven't checked out that episode, I highly recommend you do, is he was talking about how content for big tech company is, is becoming featureized. So let's explain that, right? So like whenever something is featureized, what does it mean is that the content itself's job is not to make money. So for example, like on Amazon, if what they're featurizing a podcast or a book or whatever is that they own your ears for 30 minutes to one hour more per day, which is actually worth a lot of money in terms of converting to number one, prime memberships and in keeping you within the Amazon ecosystem. Same thing for Apple or Netflix. So what does that mean? When something becomes featurized, it's not actually about the content itself. And what I think my biggest concern is, is going to create a space for a lot of shitty content where you can have a lot of just absolute crap where, you know, tech, because of the way that it's subsidized, you know, through their alternative businesses can pour all this stuff in. But at the same time, there's literally never been more money on God's earth than to create content. So it's like it's like this weird thing where there's never been more financing available. Now we have The Queen's Gambit, which apparently was a 2-hour movie and then they made it into a 10-part series. I thought it was awesome. Maybe, you know, one of the episodes kind of sucked, but like whatever. Um and there's a lot of other like awesome content out there that literally would not exist without this whole featureization thing, but I just feel like the incentives could be aligned differently. What do you think, man?
1: Yeah, there there's so much in that. Um yeah. when we were talking before, we were talking about how if you look at like like entertainment, right? Before the 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 biggest cost for movies was like production cost. So then you had like five biggest stu- these five big studios yeah, right. that basically control like what movies got made. With podcasting now, like production cost is easy. All you need is a mic and a computer. But what's hard is distributions, and all of these platforms are basically now becoming like like movie studios because they can bring in a show and promise distribution, uh, which is a little concerning because. Now they're controlling that relationship with your listener. Um, If you look at like-
0: Can we clarify something? What do you mean by distribution is hard? Because all distribution is hypothetically if a podcast is us submitting this to an RSS fee or us using Simplecast or us submitting it to putting this video on YouTube. It seems like distribution is very easy because in the film industry, distribution means getting it to the AMC theater chain or negotiating a streaming deal if it's the year 2021. What do you mean by distribution is
1: difficult? What I mean is um, putting it on Spotify is easy, right? But what gets recommended, what gets listed in like the, the, the different playlists that the Spotify has yeah. for podcasting, what shows up on like Apple's homepage um, when you open the podcast app, that's how they're sort of like controlling distribution because that basically um, sort of like influences what podcast gets listened. Um, there's a whole story about how the person who controlled Spotify's what's called the rap caviar playlist uh is so powerful because he's basically like through that playlist, make like making like making musicians um, and controlling like what songs get listened to. So that's what I mean by like controlling right. distribution.
0: Totally. So as we're thinking here, quick, this is a question that people are probably wondering about: How much does the Apple homepage or the Spotify homepage matter? when you're thinking about this. Because earlier you were talking about how this space is really intimidating. And I'm sure something that is intimidating is you look on that homepage and you see Jenna Fisher from The Office or you see all these big celebrities, all these big brands dominating those charts. Another part that plays into this debate about the future of podcasting is that people are frustrated and by people I mean purists who have been with podcasting since 2005 are frustrated that it seems that the number one way of getting a big podcast is to hire some celebrity to work with some big brand and then to just basically phone in a pretty basic interview show. So how hey, should talk we be about, thinking?
2: Don't talk about Meghan Markle.
0: I knew. Thank you. <laughs> I wasn't saying it. That's exactly what I was talking about. We all know. Everyone yeah. knows. But that's the point, right? Like that's that's actually the, the height of the problem. Problem right now from my perspective. So within that context, how should people think of the rankings when it's all about big brands and celebrities and those dynamics?
1: Do you mean how should people like, like listeners or like independent
0: creators yeah. or, or someone else? Ever, I mean, ev- I mean, everyone. So for example, I basically just don't pay attention to the rankings anymore because I just don't perceive them as being true barometers of quality. So perfect example, I don't mean this in the political sense, Hillary Clinton's podcast was number one in the algorithm. Now, I, like, separate from politics, I doubt Hillary Clinton is, a particularly... Engaging and impressive interviewer, being a politician for 30 years, does not train you to do that. I think that's largely true for most politician shows. But she was number one because she had name recognition and a big major brand backed her. The same critique applies to the Meghan Markle um, Prince Harry podcast. So as a consumer, I don't really trust the rankings, but also as a creator of podcasts, I'm frustrated by the rankings because I feel like Sagar and I can do the best jobs we can, yet it won't make that much of a difference when insert 40 something male celebrity could partner with Wondery and get to number five on the charts. Yeah.
1: yeah. And I think this is going to be a real problem as more people move into the medium. Um, and and what you, all you can do as a creator is like, differentiate yourself right and like the topics you cover the guests you have um on the topic of rankings i had an interesting experience um so when i launched my podcast we were experimenting with like a bunch of like growth stuff um doing ads on other podcasts like getting them to publish in their feed um the thing that worked though was just buying ads so we basically bought ads on all of these like affiliate networks directing people to the podcast so if you opened an app on your phone like some random app, there would be an ad for my podcast. Um, and it worked way better than I expected. Like it pushed the rankings. It it pushed it to number 25 in like all podcasts in the country. And while it did lead to like some listeners, not that many, because the thing I realized was, uh, guess who looks at podcast rankings? Who other podcasters? Yeah. Cause they're like comparing the charts, right? Like, like, maybe like consumers aren't listening, like going that deep in the thing. Um, (laughs) It, so so what it helped with was like, it helped with positioning, it helped with getting bigger guests.
2: I was going to say booking for sure. That's where it's yeah, going to help the uh, most. Yeah,
1: exactly. And so I think like in, in that sense, it is important, but I agree with your point of as sort of like all of these big celebrities start coming to the medium um, and bringing their audiences from those mediums into podcasting and going up the charts, um, people who've been doing it for a long time and the purists, um, they have to now start thinking about growth as like a very separate function from just a production because- most creators don't really spend time on growth. They just love spending time on creating. Yeah, I mean,
2: I think this is where, I I want to try and bring people more into this, which is like, why should you care? And I think one of the things that we've always tried to highlight here is we're like, look guys, if you care about the future of independent media, of politics, of the way that this all works, it all flows through media and through distribution. That's why like the fights over who owns what like with Joe Rogan and Spotify and then Spotify employees being like wanting to censor him and him, you know, posting a video, making fun of them because he's like, Hey, screw you. Like, I don't actually need you. Right? Like that's a big deal. One of the other ones here. And people always make fun of me when whenever we talk about this, cause they're like, I can't believe Sagar even cares about call her daddy. But this is what, I mean, Marshall, I've been kind of obsessed with this for the last like year is cause it was like this watershed event um like in podcasting and media and like who owns what and all can you just can you break this down For like maybe just like what you thought about the whole situation, and as a recap, this was Caller Daddy's like the Barstool podcast, which was it was very high up in the in the algorithms. And the hosts dropped out, and they basically were like, "We weren't, we're gonna leave." You know, we want you to give us the IP, the intellectual property to the show. And Dave Portnoy like trolled them. You know, and and one of them out of the show. They eventually came to a deal, and kind of everybody in the creator space was like totally obsessed with this. Uh, just break that down a little bit, and a, and a kick and a quick Here, thing.
0: The huge issue that came to the resolution was Barstool and the Collar Daddy host splitting the IP. So they together are building this product versus before they didn't actually own the IP to their show. So typically for many people who are building podcasts within a big media company, they don't actually own the IP to their show, which becomes an issue because to the earlier point, Sachit, you were making, it's actually straightforward to produce this podcast. So if I'm Michael Barbaro at The Daily, a lot of listeners know Michael and they know Michael's voice. And a lot of them are part of that because to your point about Monday, I'm sure there's actually there are millions of people who go for their morning run every Monday morning with the daily with Michael. So at a certain point, Michael and any creator has to ask themselves how much of this is just me and how much is the bigger media company? You can't do that in cable news because if you're Anderson Cooper, yeah, a lot of people watch Anderson Cooper, but he also has a $10 million set. So he can't just up and leave and employ 500 people to service that too. So that's the key context for why that debate's really structural.
1: Yeah. And actually, um, in this context, you also wanna share, Marshall, the Buzzfeed story? I know you like care about that example because I think <laughs> it, it fits in so well with this.
0: Well, yeah, so then this is all happening I think the larger thesis I have here is that when everyone was locked up for six months, we just had all this psychic energy that then played (laughs) out in these big controversies. Um, I literally listened to all these things as we were sitting at home in our then-shared apartment saga, but the key thing is BuzzFeed. There were two hosts who started a show, I think in 2017, 2018, they were sort of They were part of BuzzFeed's attempt to build a podcast network that didn't really turn out well for BuzzFeed, but the two of them specifically, we'll put this in the show notes, actually built up a a niche but valuable audience that was 100% there for them. They then, when BuzzFeed shut down their efforts, tried to leave and take their catalog and go independent, which BuzzFeed actually wouldn't really let them do. Eventually, it became a bigger issue because there were racial implications with the idea that oftentimes Black, um, Hispanic, etc. creators will create things for big companies, but then not actually participate in anything they own, and anyone who's followed the record industry will see all these big fights. But they eventually were able to leave, but they didn't get their back catalog. So that becomes a huge issue. Who owns that big interview that they did back in 2018? Do they have to split the profits they make going forward? These are these big stories that seem like they're just legalese, seem like they're just about courtroom stuff, but really matter for how you decide to create using these platforms.
1: Yeah, and I think it's funny too, like because a lot of this like is happening in Hollywood and music, right? Like with like Kanye being like Kanye asking for basically <laughs> yes. masters. Um, the whole thing with like Taylor Swift and Scooter Braun, with like him buying all her songs and Dave Chappelle and Netflix with uh, Dave and yeah, Netflix. that was that was a big one, right? And and that was really cool how Netflix was just like, okay, we'll take it down.
0: Can you give the context <laughs> yeah. for that real quick?
1: Yeah, um, so Dave Chappelle had a show and it was owned by the network um, and I don't know exactly what his deal was but, but I think like from his deal, he didn't really make money from like reruns or syndication probably on other networks and so the show started getting syndicated on Netflix and um, I bet the network was or whoever like owns it was making money. Comedy Central. Viacom, Comedy Central. I think. Yeah, was yeah and, Viacom. And, and, yeah. and Dave Chappelle wasn't getting anything from it and I think that's sort of, if you look at like the creator space um, and I'm putting like musicians in, artists in it too, like that's been the history with these studios actually having ownership of like what creators create. And, and I think what's yeah, happened is, yeah. as you say like with, like, with like, production costs going down, this is the first time where like creators can actually own their IP, um, like, like with this podcast. Um, and I think what we're gonna need is like new models of like IP sharing and ownership, where creators also have participation in both the equity and the upside from what they create.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the future. Uh, I'm absolutely convinced of this. And you see, and it's like you were just talking about, Marshall. I mean, like, I doubt Michael Barbaro knew how big The Daily was going to be, right? Like, The Daily is basically the news briefing for the professional upper middle class. Nothing wrong with that. It It is what it is. It's a great product. They're pretty good at what they do. And that is something worth, like, tens of millions of dollars. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb, and I don't think he's getting paid tens of millions of dollars. I don't know what if he has a piece— or of that, or anything, but people who largely came up in more traditional kind of strictures in media actually have no idea how much they're getting ripped off, Um, and one of the things, this was interesting, I was just, we were just looking at this, Marshall and I, about Joe Rogan is that, you know, people look at the deal, and they're like, oh, 100 million dollars, like, oh my god, that's, even he calls it fuck you money, and like, but then you look at how much the stock popped after Rogan Um, signed up for Spotify, he created like billions of dollars in their market cap. And you're like, oh, so wait, in a way he actually got ripped off because he licensed his content and added billions of dollars in shareholder value to Spotify, and as look, I mean, maybe he has, I don't know his deal or whatever, I've never asked him about it or anything, but like, I don't think he got paid in stock, and so like, he's getting paid cash, Spotify's CEO, Daniel Elk, or whatever, adds like, you know, another 500 million or whatever to his net worth, I mean, of course, it's the greatest deal in the world, like, I feel like people who are who are creating stuff need to think more about what the actual value that they're bringing to
1: these different brands are. Yeah, I think as a creator, the biggest value that you have is that relationship with your audience, um, and mm-hmm. and I think that's where like there's this like move towards like s- platforms like Substack, where you basically, for example, like own the email list, right, of of the people who subscribe to you. Yeah. Um. Ten years ago, for example, Facebook started pages, and then all these brands built up all of these pages and had a relationship, and then Facebook basically started decreasing the organic reach. So mm-hmm. now, like this relationship that you have already, now you have to pay for, pay to access for it. And, and I think like in the Rogan case, um, yeah, like that direct relationship that he has with his audience is so key because once you have that trust, then you can start selling other products to the audience and like start making money and hopefully have ownership in those businesses. Um, I think the, the greatest example like recently is like Mr. Beast, who has a crazy YouTube audience. And then, can you explain him for uh, for the uninitiated? Basically, anyone over
0: twenty five is what we're really
1: saying. (laughs) Yeah, Mr. Beast. I think he started on YouTube at like twelve and just started making all of these like gaming videos, and then found his stride when he started doing stunts. And I think he just like figured out something about the YouTube algorithm where he's like now like giving away an island, giving away all of this money, and then just built this massive audience. I think it's like hundreds... I think he's close to 100 million subscribers or something like that. Yeah. He makes That's the insane.
2: most amount of money on YouTube, right? He's like the highest paid YouTuber or whatever. I think the
1: highest paid is yeah. the, the nine year old kid who has the oh, right. boy empire. Uh, I think Mr. Beast is second, which, which is another great example, right? And so Mr. Beast had this relationship to his audience and was like, what else could I do? and then out of complete left field at least for me like launched this chain of restaurants called Mr. Beast Burger just basically like you go on this app and it's on Uber it's on and you can just like order yeah. burgers that are branded with uh his his stuff and it was the number one app in the app store um for a week
2: you know i i went down this rabbit hole recently on some of these co- so as a as a you know i owe all my success to youtube and like i should know more about youtube but i'm not like of youtube the way that a lot of these People are so. I kind of went down a rabbit hole um, with this guy David Dobrik. I'm sure everybody who's young is like, of course, Sugar doesn't know who David Dobrik is. Well, I just found out who he is. Okay, uh, I mean, this guy is like the Jimmy Fallon of Gen Z, and like, I'm watching this kid f- three, four minute, twenty second videos. They're getting like 10 million views per, and it's just like jokes, practical jokes and stuff. And they're all wearing those like and clickbait sweaters. And like, I was flying through through uh, the vacation. And I, through the airport, every Gen Z kid is wearing one of these Gen Z clickbait sweaters. And I was like, wow. Like, this is like an entire perma subculture that has evolved where I, I could go around Washington. Nobody would know who David Dobrik is. Nobody. He, he, even you could high, ask the highest NBC executive or whatever. Be like, who the hell are you talking about? Right. I mean, this kid probably has a bigger audience than Jimmy Fallon, honestly. And so I'm like, that level of disconnect is creating in my view, probably one of the biggest market opportunities, like of all time. And it seems that Hollywood and others have like figured out entertainment YouTube. So what I mean by that, like, like brands, clothing brands have figured out like whoever these like TikTok, Sway House, Hype House, whatever. They're like, I need to get them to like post about American Eagle. I need to get David Dobrik to read me like a Geek ad or whatever, which has been like phenomenal for Geek. Next time I buy tickets, I'll probably use his, his, his thing. It's like a great deal. Um, and so I'm thinking about this, but I'm like the rest of the sector hasn't been monetized in this way. Are people like waking up to that? Um, like, how do you think the industry is going to be moving as it moves away from pure entertainment into more places like news or, you know, I mean, I mean even like Tim Ferriss' show um, and other more like alternative spaces that don't track so directly with entertainment?
1: I think that the playbook is probably the same in like different industries. Yeah. So there's, there's two things happening, right? One is um, what Naval calls um, this age of like infinite leverage where now one person can have a bigger audience than like most shows. And I think David Dobrik's audience is probably bigger than, yeah, like most late night shows, especially yeah. now that everything is on YouTube and everyone's doing it over Zoom, it's insane. Um, and so that relationship can be scaled to like infinite products and everything. I think that the other move that's happening is if you look at like influencers before they would monetize by like doing like ads and then they figured out if they're like moving product instead of like just charging like one time for a post, why not charge for a percentage of product? Um, right. So then like that, like they started doing like affiliate deals and then they were like, well, why don't we just like create our own products, which is like Kylie Jenner's like makeup line. And Bingo. then the um a lot of the like price uh, Hall and, and, His partners from like Sway House, the TikTok stars, they have their like own energy drink. And I think that's where we're moving is if someone has this trust with their audience and the niche, niche, they'll like start creating their own products now.
0: So as excited as I am to fantasize about the realignment energy drink line and our super (laughs) throwback 1990s champion um, hoodies. I have to ask, let's bring this down for an actual listener who is probably much closer to, in terms of where they're starting out, 12-year-old David Dobrik. I mean, Sagar, even when we started the realignment... Mm I was a fellow to Think Tank. I'd worked at PBS. You had your rising show. So most actual people who are starting out are starting out with nothing but their voice, maybe 200 to $600 worth of equipment. Sachi, so how should they be thinking? And this is actually how we could get into your new job that we're working together on mm-hmm. with On Deck. How should they be thinking about entering into this space because it's on a certain level talking about David Dobrik as fun as that is, is like talking about Marilyn Monroe yeah, when you're true. talking to some kid who's moving out to, to California to work in Hollywood.
1: Yeah. And I'm curious, like, even with like your guys' show, cause you guys started last year and it's grown. How do you guys think on sort of like the monetization and like business side of it?
0: I am most interested in the niche idea. So from the start, because we were grounded in legacy media, the Hill, PBS, etc., we never framed ourselves as we're trying to be just this big show. We thought, what can we do that we can do better than the sort of institutions we were at? And what that was was we could focus on this very specific Washington DC, Washington DC, you're young, you're interested in politics and policy, but you don't like whatever is happening we focused there and that's the advice that anyone who's thinking about this should apply it isn't just about it isn't just about politics and policy it's hey i have two friends who are from oregon they want to do a politics podcast that's an interview show that's focused on the state legislature in both cases that's an audience of 600 to 5000 people who you're starting out with but if you could find a way to deliver something consistently to them That's when you could start expanding out. That's how you could sort of to bring a phrase from a startup world, get to audience product fit. So you have your podcast, you found your audience, you could expand out there. But on a broader level, because we worked through your initial framework of not thinking of advertising as our initial market, we thought, hey, What if we partner with a think tank? That's why we're partnering with Lincoln Network. We don't sell traditional ads. Sagar's not reading about undies anytime soon. (laughs) But at the same time, Lincoln Network, because we work with them at the Reboot Conference, because we're aligned on our interest in tech and politics, they will sponsor and pay for the production of this episode. So we didn't think, we thought along those strategic lines. We didn't just think, how are we going to be able to read ads for a $25 CPM? And what's your thing on this, Sagar?
2: Yeah, it's definitely that, which is that I was like, I do not want to read MeUndies ads. Like, I just don't want to do it. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but I'm like, you know, there's a like different way to do this. Um, and I guess, I, I mean, people are probably rolling their eyes, but like, I was really inspired when I figured out like joe rogan's what like the key to his success was because what marshall was talking about was like yeah we started out like policy poli- policy and politics and there's a lot of people out there on capitol hill and you know k street and whatever who listen to this podcast um they probably won't listen to this one because they're very, they're always like oh a politician like i'll listen to that one it's it's like literally useful to their job so we're adding value there that's great um, my goal from the beginning though, has been, look, we're multifaceted people. Like these aren't the only things that we care about. And actually that's a benefit in this space. Cause I used to think I'm like, ah, oh, like if we talk about this here, like people are going to be, you know, bored or depressed. And I'm like, no, 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 no. The, the beauty of this is that you can listen to whatever you want. Right. And so like, I'm sure other people do this with Joe Rogan. Like whenever I see, I'll I'll scroll through like his latest, like six episodes and I'll see one about history. I'm like, boom, gotta listen. Right. One about politics. Got to listen. One about MMA. Look, I went to an MMA fight once. It was pretty cool. But like, I'm not gonna listen to four hours of him like breaking down each jujitsu move. Right. And it's all good. Right. Because there's a huge segment of his audience which skips politics and skips history, but only listens to that MMA. And I was like, that's the genius of it. Right. Which is that in traditional media, being multifaceted is a bad thing. Right? Like they want you to hammer home your niche in order to keep, like Fox, for example, like if you're on TV, uh, your job is to like spit red meat right at your screen for 45 straight minutes and keep people hooked in between those ad breaks. Here, if you only listen to one episode a month because we do one tech episode or like one politics episode, fine, right? It, that's completely fine. It actually helps everybody. You get what you want. Like we get to talk about everything that we want. It's like the limitlessness of the space is what like i'm inspired by and that's like what i want to keep and grow this thing up into right
1: uh yeah so i want to underscore like two things that you guys mentioned um one is the the sort of like different topics that joe rogan covers right and really like he's really like four shows in one there's the comedy there's the politics there's the health and then there's the entertainment Uh, i'm really curious actually like now go back and look though like when he started was he doing all four or did he just focus let's say on comedy Really no. build a brand in that and like do others. Was it not that? See, ex- it
2: was it's, it was comedy. See, that was the thing. I, I actually went back. I started listening to some of the old ones just because there were some guests that I was like, I wanted to listen to them in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was this one guest. It was like a drug journalist. Her name was like Maria. She was Portuguese. I don't want to butcher her name. She does a Nor- uh, National Geographic show, which is fantastic. And he was like, I haven't had you on in like 10 years. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, I wonder what Rogan was like 10 years ago. First of all, Whew, totally different, right? But at the beginning of the interview, he was like, you're the first guest that I was like, I gotta talk to that lady. And that was like episode 300, right? So that means he went like 300 episodes, mostly talking to like comedians, other people who work with like UFC. It was much more like the core thing. I mean, what are the two things he knows most about? Which is, it's UFC and it's comedy. And so those were like the earliest of the early, really like raunchy shit that, you know, like internet comedy of the 2000s, think like vice at its heyday kind of type thing. It was nothing like it is today. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just it's I look back at that and I was like, oh, see, like all it is is like you just grind at that for 10 years. I'm like, any, I, I mean, not
0: anybody can do it, but like you could do it. Right. But this is the yeah. key strategic thing, because yeah. For example, Sagar, we're doing this preseason premiere. We're just talking about podcasting in the media industry. But the actual episode that's coming out on Tuesday is with Joe Weisenthal. We're talking about finance and tech and those things. What we could not have done when we started the podcast is first episode, podcasting. Second episode, finance. Third episode, we're covering this other random thing. Because that would be confusing to the audience. It wouldn't help us actually build out in the niche. And this is where, and Sachit, I want to know what you think about this. What is the mix of art and science here? Because Sakurai didn't wake up one day and say okay, we've made an empirical assessment. Now is the time to have Jared Dicker on to talk about media record labels, even though there's this portion of the audience who's gonna say, wait, I'm only here for populist politics. Why are you talking to somebody at the Washington Post? Mm -hmm. We just sort of did it. So I'm guessing there's probably a more systemic practice you could bring to that, especially considering that most of the shows you've worked on before were eclectic Mm -hmm. in their topics and guests. How should someone think about where they're starting and where they're going?
1: Yeah, um, quick tangent, the episode with Jerry Dicker. If you're listening to this one, I was actually listening to the one you guys did uh, yesterday and it's so good, like a great compliment to this. Um, in terms of that, um, I think the first thing is like, you were like, we were talking about is like start with the niche and then like come into the game knowing you're gonna play the game for a long time. Because I think like, those are like the first sort of like frameworks and ground rules that you have to like start with. Um, Beyond that, I I agree. I think it is more of an art than a science, especially because in podcasting, I, one of the like things I hate is like there's the, the granularity of the data just isn't there, and
0: you it's don't count. have any
1: like yeah. any like tight feedback loops, right? What I would love to see if, would be um, some sort of let's say like um, I had this idea the, the other day. It's like if you could connect hundred people listening to a podcast with some sort of like brain scanner and see like where. The, they're like brains light up. Um, obviously that yeah. doesn't exist. Um, and, and also most podcasters don't have a any sort of like direct relationship with their audience. So like one of the things I tell podcasters to do is just like try and like email, like have like an email relationship with your audience or just like get on calls with them to like see like what they like and what they don't like. And I think like, those are some sort of like pieces of feedback that you can take to decide when to move. But beyond that, I think it is more of just an art than a science.
0: And what I'm loving about the audience feedback idea is, whether you're doing an interview show like we do or you're doing something that's more narratively focused or you're doing something about careers, focusing on serving your audience from day one, bringing that mentality is so key because the way that we got audience feedback, we were really lucky in that we didn't have to just cold email or cold solicit because we very much framed ourselves as, hey, we're trying to be helpful. There are things that you're thinking about we're figuring it out too. So come listen. So just by framing it that way, people just Gave us inbound. People would email us. People would tweet at us. People, we started doing audience Q&A. So finding ways to think of that audience service question. Another great podcast is Founders Journal, which is done by the um, co-founder and CEO of Morning Brew, Alex Lieberman. He does these podcasts that are very short, but they're focused on here's something I'm confronting in my business today. And he frames it along the lines that someone who's just doing a podcast or someone who's writing a newsletter or in their own career could sort of do. And that way, that's what solicits the audience's response and engagement on that topic. So finding ways how in your niche, in your format, in your program you could serve is a good way to do that.
1: Yeah. And I think the preeminent article on this is like the, the whole like Kevin Kelly, 1000 crew fans is because really like you want to get that first before you start thinking about like outwardly spending. Yes. Um, so for example, like for me, when I started, um, I had spent so much time with podcasters who I know were very good on the creative side and not on the business side. So that's where like, I'm trying to like focus more on the business of being a creator because that becomes the niche. And like, what happens is the reason I also did that was I knew there was this audience of podcasters that wanted to hear about the business because they they understand the creation but not the business. So they would become like the first 102,000 true fans. And then from there later on, I can start expanding.
2: Yeah. And that's the key too. I don't want anyone to listen to what I said and be like, great. So I'll just start a podcast where I talk about this and that and that, because that's me. I'm like, listen, there are a lot of parts of me, which, uh, not a lot of people want to hear about. And that's fine. Right? Like that's what I get to call Marshall for and, and complain to him. Like what this is about is you find an audience and you give them, you know, this, like you said, you 1,000 tree fans and you try and figure something out together and you use feedback and all that. And then you try and find other areas in which there's market fit. So, like, don't mistake something for, like, just because I want to talk about something, that means that other people want to hear about it. Uh, and in some cases that be true. If you're Joe Rogan, that is true. But, you know, not everybody is that way, right? And so when you're starting out and you're thinking about this, you should be slavishly dedicated. I'm not going to say, like, I don't want this to sound as if, like, tell your audience what it wants to hear. No, like, be authentic to yourself, but be authentic to yourself in a way that is actually useful and adding value to people's lives, and I think that that is, like, probably the most important concept that I try to impart to people who are kind of working in this business. They're like, oh, I read this article, which, you know, could be really interested. Like, you should talk to this, like, super niche journal author um, for the real, and I'm like, okay, like maybe like does it connect to the broader themes of the show um and all that you know it's like a very polite for those of you out there um who dm me your tweet if i don't respond like this is what i mean you know what i'm saying and like but here's the thing sometimes there is an obscure journal author like there's this guy richard hanania who we just had on a season finale on the podcast um he just launched this new think tank he had this great new study which like really intrigued me and i was like "Yeah, yeah, yeah come on in but like that the thing is that i knew that that paper directly related to the thesis of my podcast, right? So like you have to have the brain of like like you just said, like I know there's an audience out there. There's this thing I'm legitimately interested in. Those things kind of have to come together, and um, because I think a lot of people really make the mistake of saying like, oh, well, I'm really interested in, you know, whatever. And I'm like, okay, well, like, I hope that there's enough people who are, or, like, you should do some research and make sure, you know, test it out and all that stuff and be willing to abandon that if it doesn't work out and try something else, which is same and authentic to yourself. But uh, there's a lot of self-indulgence in this business, which I think, you know, actually does a lot of uh, harm to, to some people. Before yeah, we,
0: uh, oh, sorry, Satchit,
2: please. Uh,
1: just to quickly add, like, I think a lot of yeah. people are like talking at their audience, Yeah, talking to their audience. Um, So it's like a one-way thing instead of a two-way thing where you can like get feedback. And the more you can do that, the faster that you can improve. I think the other thing too is like with the internet and like proliferation of internet everywhere, whatever weird thing like people are into, there usually is a small group. And like, that's where like what you said about like just being yourself is so important because it's easy to like sort of like fake a character for like 20, 30, 40 episodes. But at some point... Like yeah. you're going to like, like start going away from, right? Like be yourself. So just start being yourself initially. Um, It's funny because like that's the same thing in dating. A lot of people will like <laughs> try and be like the perfect person. And then like, but it's like, it doesn't make sense because after a few dates, you have to be yourself. Um, and, and I think that applies to podcasting because you'll find the same sort of like people who are into that same weird thing that you're into.
0: Yeah. And this is the key thing that I want to hit before we hit our last section your reference to Kevin Kelly's thousand true fans idea. The reason why to our first question, why are you excited about podcasting? The key thing that I would put under all of our conversation today is that everyone is figuring out how this space works. It truly is the wild west. My whole point about big brands and celebrities goes to the fact that no one quite has figured out how to create serials, which are, like, serial as in serial, the, like, famous, like, audio production of 2014. The industry hasn't figured out how to consistently create new hits with unknown people on new topics. So what has happened is people have just brought in celebrities to do it. It's the Wild West idea. This is a total frontier, and if you want to get into a space where there's all these interesting ideas, like, once again, the Thousand True Fans idea, which I would basically summarize, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sachi, is meaning— with today's media economy, it is possible that you could ha- create a product that is supported by a 1,000 people and you're just good to go in the sense that if you could create, and actually also Lee Jin, who is basically one of the best writers on the creator slash passion economy. She used to be at A16Z. Um, what she's spoken about is we actually live in an economy where if you have 100 fans, you should get your podcast going. So something people are going to probably wonder is, How do I launch a podcast if I don't have an editor, if I don't have money for art, paying for cap-wing, all those sort of things? Make a Patreon and have 100 people chip in 5 bucks a month. That is entirely doable, and that's something you could build off of Twitter. That's what's exciting about this space. So it's weirdly a mix of having to be entrepreneurial while also being a creator. And this is something you had said, Sachi, earlier when you said the people who are doing the best work in this space, they're able to create and be really effective. They could craft good questions, book interesting guests, but they also have to think almost as if they themselves are entrepreneurs because in many ways the whole point of the Caller Daddy and BuzzFeed controversy is that you are the central value proposition yeah. here. It's not the mic. It's not the big expensive thing. It's not you hiring three or four production staff. It's Ken can Sagar, can Marshall, can Saatchi actually perform this thing that creates value for people?
1: Mm-hmm. And I think you found something really interesting there where it's like, you have one job, which is being the creator. And then the other job, which is actually like the business of being a creator that you have to do both. And I think this is where we sort of like have this theme going on right now where everyone's going to go independent. Everyone in media is going to start a sub stack. I'm not sure if that happens like that, partly because being the business person is very different from being yeah. the creator. Um, like if you're doing the business, right? You have to like think about like marketing, you have to t- think about acquiring readers. Um, if you have subscriptions, at some point you have to start thinking about retention because if your churn is too high, then you basically have to like replace all your customer base every six to 12 months. I think these are the things sort of like that are on the business side that people haven't thought about yet.
0: Yeah, so as we're wrapping up here, what's hit what you and I are working on this year specifically. At on deck. So for quick context for everyone, I have been podcasting for realignment. I worked at PBS. I did the work at Hudson and Lincoln, but I'm joining the on deck team with Sachet, where I'm going to be a podcast partner. And you are actually the program director for the podcast program. Can you just explain like what on deck is, what your job is, and why people should look into the programming that you're working on?
1: Yeah, so OnDeck was started by Eric Torenberg um, about four or five years ago as just a sort of dinner series exploring for people who wanted to explore what was next because he was number one at Product Hunt and then wanted to ex- wanted to explore like what he wanted to do next and create a safe space for people to come together and do that. So, so last year they started the Found Fellowship where they brought together 100 plus people to explore what they wanted to do, do next, and it's this idea of like community as a service and. For me, the experience was mind blowing. Um, Just sort of like how helpful people were, how giving they were. Um, And I was like, I wanna be part of the community and like forever. Um, This year when COVID hit, they were literally about to launch third fellowship and it was in person and they moved everything online and actually worked better than it expected. So OnDeck then expanded into like all these different verticals like media, no code, um, climate to create all these different fellowships. And Marshall and I are working on the podcast fellowship. My mission with that really is to like bring together both seasoned podcasters and people who wanna just start podcasting. And and really like this idea of like training the next generation of podcasting talent. Um, So one thing I'm really excited about Marshall is sort of like how you bring the background from PBS on like the production and creating side. And I bring the background from like the monetization and marketing and really create that playbook for people to become independent creators and create something they're proud of.
0: Yeah, and just the key thing, not to sell our own stock too much here, but the part that I want anyone who listens to this conversation to take away is that operating in this space is a humongous opportunity. And there are people like Sachet who worked with these really great people coming out there, people like Sagar who happened to launch a podcast the same month that you were getting a YouTube show. And there are people like me, who come from Legacy Media. You have to get good at so many different things. You have to find ways to work with so many different people from do I need an editor, do do I need to max my social game? What are other podcasts I should be going on? That it's really helpful to have a community and a scaffolding that can help you actually build in that space.
1: Yeah, the, the community part is so key because like even if you look like as a podcaster, the journey is pretty lonely, right? Like you don't know that many people You can be like, Hey, like, what do you think of this episode? Or how do you do this? And we're going to have all of these ways where people can give each other feedback, help promote each other. Um, and just, yeah, it's peer to peer growth. i um, super excited about that.
2: Yeah. I'm excited to, uh, see where this thing goes. It's so funny. I'm just reflecting like on what you just said, Marshall, it's like, you know, people think that this job or rising, or even when I used to do when I was at the Daily Caller is like at the Daily Caller, right? They think you're just like a journalist. Like you just write the words and you like send an email in your story and it just like appears on the website. It's like, no, like you have to be basically a blogger. Like you have to learn how to write copy, how to write a story, which like keeps people engaged. You have to learn how to write a headline, see what your audience responds to, stay true to like what you're doing and keep all of that aligned in order to get traffic. And like, that's actually like six different old newspaper jobs all rolled into one. It was the same thing with YouTube. I mean, it's funny when you were talking, Sacha, about those podcast analytics, I tear my hair out over the fact that we have terrible analytics. Because over at YouTube, like, oh man, I don't want to creep too many people out here, but like, I know a lot, you know? I know a lot about what you're doing. Like what you're clicking on, how long you're watching a video, recommendation. And like, if I could have that for podcasting, my biggest subscribers, like who is watching what average unique I mean, all of these things dramatically helped me understand who are the people who are watching rising. It definitely helped us grow rising. It helped us be like, oh, wow, like people really care about this one subject. Like I should try and Bogo book a guest um, on something, not really something that I necessarily would have thought of. Like all we have here are just like the raw downloads, basically They're like, oh, X amount of downloads. I'm like, okay, but like how many finished it? Like how one many, quick- you know, whatever.
0: One quick thing I add to that is Spotify is a little better in that Spotify tells you where yeah, people right. drop off. So you actually could see how many people finish the episode, which is, by the way, you guys really cut off when we do our final ad read out of the show. Um, total, as yeah. in it goes from like 78 all down good. to 13. Yeah. Only thir- I want to know, who yeah. are the 13% of you who listen through <laughs> the entire thing at that rate? The ones um, who are driving. The ones who are driving and can't hit their phones. You're actually that's totally right. No, that's yeah. actually totally, yeah, that's actually, that's yeah. no, that's, that's what yeah. that is. It's you're you're, you're reaching the you can't get to it. Um, so, so yeah. such it, um, where can everyone find what you're working on? Um, I know you've got the podcast, which you're relaunching. We've got all of our on deck stuff. Our, you're in my DMS are obviously open if people who are interested in the program. We're going to be doing a lot more stuff on clubhouse. Which we have fun with doing, but yeah, anything else we should know would be great.
1: Yeah. Um, check out beyond deck at dot com slash podcasters. Um, My show is on creators.show on Twitter, uh, DMs open.